The evil of corruption reaches into every corner of the world. Corruption lies at the heart of the most urgent problems we face. Welcome to Confidential Brief, where Chad Thomas takes you into the stories behind the issues facing our society. A very good afternoon to you. It's just after the midday mark on this Monday, the 24th of October. Confidential Brief is proudly brought to you by Rubber Roofs, the trusted name in roof waterproofing. If you're tired of getting contractors in to fix your leaky roof only to find out that your roof still leaks, well, maybe it's time to sort that leak out for good. Rubber Roofs manufacture and apply the rubber roof to your roof. Your roof will look great and won't leak anymore. Rubber Roofs have a 10-year warranty and is the trusted name in roof waterproofing. You can find out more at www.rubberroofs.co.za. They say as much things change, so they stay the same. And we've seen this with the same old rhetoric from former President Jacob Zuma with his very strange press conference that was held this past weekend where once again everybody is to blame and he is merely the victim. He even takes credit for turning Eskom around during his tenure as president of the country, saying that there was no load shedding during that time. And in fact, he put an end to it and was able to put Eskom back onto the correct road. And of course, once again, we're hearing about everybody is to blame for corrupt relationships, except, of course, for himself. It's very interesting, the timing, as, of course, is the ongoing Palapala narrative, because, as I'm sure you're all aware, it's less than two months to go. In fact, it's just over a month, in fact, that the African National Congress will have its leadership conference, the National Elective Conference, which will take place to elect the leadership of the ruling party for the next term. And, of course, we've seen recalls after Polokwane. We saw recalls after Mangaung and then later Nazarek. Are we going to see recalls again? We've said recalls in lower office. We've already seen two provincial premiers step down from their roles because they are no longer in leadership of those respective provinces and PECs, and they've given over to the new leadership. But what is going to happen with this leadership contest come December? A lot of people throwing their, their hats in the, in, the, in the race again. Once again, we're seeing Lindiwe Sesulu, who's saying she's going to most probably partner up with Kusana Lamini Zuma, which in itself would be a very interesting dynamic. Two women at the, at the helm of the party if they had to win. And, of course, we now hear in the narrative that it's time for a woman to take control. Well, for me, I think it's time for somebody that is capable, young enough to understand the dynamics in South Africa, and competent enough to run a country as diverse and complicated as ours. Joining us in a couple of minutes, a very old friend, Mario Fazikas, who we're going to be discussing fraud awareness and how important it is for your organization. But before that, of course, I'd like to remind you of the fact that the views expressed on the show aren't necessarily those of mine or that of Chai FM. You're listening to The Confidential Brief with Chad Thomas on Chai FM. Chai FM is proudly brought to you by Rubber Roofs, the trusted name in roof waterproofing. There's an opportunity for those listeners out there that uh, are dynamic and really want to be a part of the team. HiFM is looking for sales representatives, and if you are customer and detail-orientated, computer literate, creative, and great at networking, then this is the perfect opportunity for you to become part of the HiFM sales team. Email Kathy with a K at HiFM.com. Would be great to hear from you guys. 
Somebody I haven't seen in 25 years. I met up with in the car park today. He was coming, getting ready for his High FM interview. And it's none other than Mario Fazekas. Mario, a very welcome, a huge warm welcome to High FM. Thanks, Chad. Good to be here. After so long. It is. I met Mario in 1997. I was still at BOE. At that stage, BOE owned NBS, the Old Natal Building Society, and Wurland Banks. And checks were still a thing. Um, I was in charge of the investigation team within the internal insurance component. So if the bank suffered a loss, we would have to investigate it to see whether the, the bank was at risk and whether there'd have to be a payout from our banker's blanket bond. And, of course, check fraud was rife. And the expert of the day was none other than Mario Fazekas, and he used to come in and chat to our staff about it. Mario, a lot's changed since then. Oh, indeed. Checks have disappeared. They always threatened they'd be gone, and here it is. Here's the day. Now, I remember, if we go back to those days, because it's so very important, because we can apply that kind of security to other instances where there are are, are products or systems that are at risk. So let's simplify it. What was the problem with checks in those days? Because checks are still used in other countries. We one of the we we and we often are at the forefront, but we're at the forefront of change and checks are no longer valid in South Africa. They were very valid at that point in time. Everybody had a checkbook. Tell us a little bit about the the problems that faced checks in those days and the kind of solutions you came up with. Well, it took a bit of research and what we found is that Check printing companies would give good quality checks. They were on watermark paper. They used um, security inks. But we found out that they have a shelf life. So it's like buying a hamburger. You forget about it in your drawer. And 10 days later, you find it. You're not going to eat it. You're going to throw it away. So it's the same with the paper and the inks. They had about an 18-month shelf life. Printing companies, however, wanted to save money. So they would buy five-year stock of the stuff. So if you ordered your checks in year one, you're looking good. And also we tell clients, don't order a five-year stock of your checks. But that costs more money than I said, well, you want secure, don't you? So we started bringing in our own watermark paper, our own inks, to make sure it was fresh. Then the next challenge was they were not making out the checks correctly, using the wrong pens, using the wrong printers. So the next obvious step was to train our clients, to show them this is the type of pen. Use a cokey pen so it soaks into the paper, so it makes it more difficult for the criminal when they use their chemicals and scrape the information off. They're going to scrape a hole into the page. So that's how it, it metamorphosed since then. So I remember what was fascinating to me was that you identified at that stage, and the two that stood out for me was checks that were intercepted by syndicates in the post office where they could remove the, the, the details of the payee and insert their own details. And then the more sophisticated syndicates that had knowledge of your business and your operation could actually print their own checkbooks. Yes. And so, yeah, they, they would use various techniques to eradicate information. And that's another part of what we told our clients. Don't use see-through envelopes. They may be cheaper, but in the post office, people can hold them up and see they've got a check in it. So use a window envelope that's not see-through. And then we also found that syndicates were bribing people in the printing companies to come in after hours, set up the printing presses, and print the checks. Or they would just say, print us a few. There were always overs. Whenever you print something, there's a couple of hundred overs that's supposed to be shredded. They would just hold a few back and sell it to the syndicate. Or if the controls were very good, they would just take the last two checks from the pack. So if I'm ordering 10,000 checks, 
I'm only going to get to the last one in a year's time. That's the one that they would go with. So you wouldn't know it's missing. And then they would put those through the system. Does it come as a surprise to you that countries like America, certain states, are still using checks? Oh, they love the checks, the Americans. I, I don't know why. <laughs> and they're still sitting with these type of problems. And they say, what inks can we use? And they, you, do we use a hologram? They're still using holograms. It's what we call a transferable feature. You can cut it off one piece of paper and glue it to another, and it's the original hologram. So the person verifying it will put it through. Watermarks, they print their own watermark using a, a grayish-type pigment, uh, ink, that looks like it's it's a watermark. So as the FBI is training, they say, get a real one and compare the U.S. dollar or the check to it. So always have a real one that you can look at. Otherwise, the one by itself, be it a driver's license, a check, looks good enough to go through. What does a paper, ink, printing, check specialist do when checks become dormant in South Africa? Uh, then it, he moves over to ransomware. <laughs> <laughs> ransomware attacks, hacking, they don't stop. Uh, currently, a uh, few years back, a syndicate member was arrested. He had a memory stick in his pocket. We call it the 50,000 Rand memory stick. On that memory stick were hundreds of Word documents, Excel spreadsheets, and PowerPoint presentations. Everything you would need for FICA documents to go and buy a car under someone else's name and Look good enough to get it through. MTN statements, SABC statements, ID documents, proof of residence, you name it, on that memory stick. And that's why they could sell it for 50000 They were good quality. So you as a document specialist have had to make the move across to digital. But the criminals were already there, let's be honest. The criminals are very adept at change. So when checks fell by the wayside, they just changed their modus operandi. And you changed the way in which you presented to to your target market because your job is very important. You there to train the corporates, to train the bankers, to train the insurance company what to look out for. How difficult was it for you to make the change across from the physicality of a piece of paper into this whole digital sphere? I could see it coming. That's why I've I've got an arrangement with companies called a know before Terra Nova who do security awareness training that's what they do so I can do the basics so I can give people the basics of if you get an email that says it's FedEx and there's a parcel this is what you must look out for and it'll normally be dear cardholder dear client the real if you really banked with these people if you really worked uh, did were a client of theirs it would be your name dear Mr. C. Thomas it wouldn't be dear client things like that so I incorporate that in our training because you can't divorce the fraud side from the cyber side because criminals are using cyber tools to defraud. Are people showing an appetite because we hear about fraud and corruption every single day? It's become the accepted and everybody anticipates being a victim sooner than later. But there's this helicopter view, specifically because we have a country where fraud and corruption, unfortunately, has made massive inroads into the way in which our country is run. Is it difficult to still say to an organization, you need up-to-date training? You need to make sure that the individuals involved in the ecosystem understand how your organization can and in all probability will become a victim of fraud. Chad, training is critical. Knowledge is power. 
And in some of our clients, management has said this, but you're giving, you're telling them how to do it. And I said, with respect, if they want to find out, they'll find out themselves. They'll go online. In the days when I used to defraud checks, people said, oh, you're telling us what the three chemicals are. I said, yes, because you can buy it online. It's sold over the counter in England and Europe for um, students. If they make a mistake, they don't start over again. They go and buy this chemical. Oh, okay. So it's the same thing now. We've got to show them what to do, uh, what to look out for. So if you've got 100 employees, one or two are going to try and defraud you. The other 98 will be alert. Your internal auditors cannot be everywhere. So hopefully these 98 will then trust the hotline, report, and you'll pick it up much sooner. So it's critical to bring that in. That's the exciting part of the training where we show people, look what the criminals are doing. We're chatting today to Mario Fazakas about the importance of fraud awareness in all types of organizations. We'll be back straight after this. You're listening to The Confidential Brief with Chad Thomas on High FM. Confidential Brief is proudly brought to you by Rubber Roofs, the trusted name in rubber waterproofing. We're chatting today to Mario Fazakas, who is a fraud awareness training specialist. I met him 25 years ago when he lectured on the importance and significance of what to look out for in checks, when checks arrived, when checks were made, when checks were delivered, and the the, the amount of fraud relating to checks in those days was absolutely immense. Now, of course, we've got EFTs, we've got um, these different PayPal-type solutions, digital paying, we've got cryptocurrency, so much has changed since then, and as I mentioned earlier, criminals have become adept at change. You obviously don't lecture about checks anymore. You've had to keep well-versed in terms of what's going on, Mario, and that's why we're here today. What is the training that people and organizations need in order for them to have some level of protection from their staff perspective? Well, Chad, they need to understand their policies, their code of conduct, because they're going to be um, held liable if they don't follow what the code of conduct says. So it's critical. They need to understand the whistleblowing mechanism and that they have a responsibility to blow the whistle. They need to understand what will happen when I blow the whistle. Is it anonymous? Because you just open up the papers and you see a lot of victimization with whistleblowers. So that is part of the training where we come in and tell them, this is the number. It's run by an independent party. When you make the call, um, they'll ask you a few questions. You don't have to give your name. And that puts them at ease. They're not going to go and blow the whistle internally. A lot of companies still don't have external hotlines. So those are some of the critical things. Um, we call it MAP, um, Motivator, Ability, and Prompt. So when we're training people, you've got to motivate them. So you want them to blow the whistle. How do you motivate people? Carrot and stick. So if you do blow the whistle, there could be a reward for you. And there's a way to give an anonymous person a reward. I'm not going to go into that now. Um, the other thing is to say if you if you know of something and you don't blow the whistle, you yourself could be fired, which happened at Dunlop and Durban where 65 workers were fired. And this very year with AF Brands where a worker – um, hid some money in a bank bag, did not deposit it, held it back, hoping that it wouldn't be found out. It was found out, obviously. They did the investigation and found that her colleague knew that she had put the money in this bag. They fired her. Not the one that hid the money. Obviously, they're going to prosecute her. But the one that knew about it, they said, why didn't you tell us? You knew what she did. Then the A is the ability. Have an 0800 toll line. It costs seven, 8,000 rand a month. It's a small price to pay. How else are people going to come forward and tell you what's going on? 
And then the P part is the prompt. That's where the training comes in. It's face-to-face training, online training, posters, stickers. Those are the type of things that prompt people. We've got a graph where we um, where I managed a hotline for 18 months. And you see the graph peaks three times over a 18-month period. When I went back in my diary, I found out one was industrial theater. One was a simple newsletter that we sent out just to remind people to do the right thing. They blew the whistle and then it peters out after a while and goes down again. So, And then the other thing is to show people what are the, the latest frauds. Which brings me to the one, change of bank details. It's still happening, Chad. It's still happening today. It's been going on for 10, 15 years. They still find out who your clients are. They send you a letter. The, my latest one was I was training a university here in South Africa. Why was it the training a success? Because the rector himself attended each session. In most of my clients, you never see the senior people there. What does that tell the, the rest of the staff about the training? So the rector himself came to the training. I was doing department by department. I trained the finance department last year in September. Eight days later, the attack came. Nigerian syndicate member. He had all the details, so he obviously had inside information. They were dealing with a, a middleman, so he knows the 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 email address format. He emails the finance person on a Saturday morning to say, please don't transfer the money to Standard Bank. Transfer it now to FNB. He has the banking details. Second nature. You look at it, that's it. You've, it's $100 million. I'm not going to say which university. You can just go look in the, in the press. It'll tell you which university. They transfer the money. $100 million gone. He then realized, hey, in the training I was told to verify but it's his email. I know it's him. He was going to send the email today. Let me just pick up the phone and phone him. He phones the guy at the middleman, which I think was an investec company. He says, I didn't send you any email. I'm still going to send you the email. He says, I can't believe it. I've just transferred the $100 million. So to cut a long story short, they got hold of FNB, stopped the money. Only 3,000 Rand had been taken so far. If he'd have left it till Monday, I don't know what would have been left in that account. So that's how you do training. Um, over and above that, there's what's called deep fakes, where the criminals are faking your voice. So they'll, your senior person may be interviewed um, numerous times and have all these clips on YouTube. They download, they only need two or three hours of, of audio, and then they say, we want the person to say this. Adobe makes the product, and it'll put it together in those words. They've even got video deep fakes where it takes the mouth and puts it over the original video footage of the person. So those, we, think of it. I'm, I'm a finance person. I'm sitting there. My phone rings. Yes, it's the CFO. It's his voice. I can hear it. Hi, Chad. I'm at the airport. I can't talk. Please take down this number. This is urgent, urgent. Please transfer the $100 million. When I land, I'll phone you. Got it? Good. Cheers. I'm going to transfer the money because it's your voice. Now, Mario, we've spoken about deep fakes. We've spoken about the cloned accounts, which is huge at the moment, the changing banking details. One thing that a lot of people are unaware of is that certain companies, and we talk about big companies, can't withstand a massive fraud. We know that it can be business-ending or catastrophic for small and medium-sized companies, but we always assume that the bigger companies have some or other insurance in place or they can have cash reserves that will be able to tide them through. That wasn't the case with a company that you assisted in Namibia. Tell us a little bit about that. Uh, it was one of the cement companies, 
And the one employee defrauded 75 million Namibian dollars. The cement company closed its doors. That's how big the fraud was. So the signs were there. They were audited by one of the big four auditing firms over the last past four or five years. And I always tell people, look at the lifestyle of the person. Nine out of ten criminals will show off. It's human nature. I want you to see my new Porsche or Mustang or whatever it is that I've got. My Rolex watch. I want you to say, wow, Mario, what a nice watch. Where would you get it from? You know, that's the, I want that ad- adulation. She had a, a one million rand Toyota Land Cruiser among four or five other cars. She had a property in Pioneers Park, one of the upmarket suburbs in Vintok. She had a home decorating and, and business. Nobody said a word. Here's a junior employee with millions of rands worth of assets. Her colleagues didn't say anything because they weren't trained. If they had a hotline, nobody told them hard works. They just slapped up a few posters. And the auditors didn't think to look at lifestyle of people. Can you imagine how many families are now without food simply because of that one individual? Of course, that's the knock-on effect. And I think this is what people don't realize, is that fraud has become so prolific that it does impact. We've seen the impact from a public space perspective in respect of service delivery. We don't see the impact so much in the private sector unless it impacts on us personally. But what we don't seem to realize is there's a rise in premiums from an insurance perspective because there's an increase in theft that those policies cover. But so much of that itself is in-house. It's people that have manipulated the system to their own advantage. In your many, many years of being in this space, can you help identify for our listeners just how many times you've found collusion taking place between service provider and the the, the actual employer. And that has that knock-on effect. Because I don't think people realize that fraud isn't an outside offense. Many times it's right there under your nose. Well, yes, if we take corruption, it takes two to tango. So you need a corrupt employee and somebody outside the company offering him or her some money. Alternatively, you can, you can, all your people can be honest and hardworking, but the vendors themselves collude. They fix the prices. They take turns. You would have seen it in quite a few of the industries. I think one of them was the, the cement industry. I can't remember how many years back, eight years, somewhere around there, where we were actually part of it. I was with a company called Exact Tech. We, we worked with the asset forfeiture units. We would then go in with unannounced help us seven in the morning as they open up, seize all the senior people's computers to see are they communicating, are they fixing prices? And that was the case. They were fixing the prices. And it happens in many industries. So it doesn't necessarily take someone in your organization to be corrupt. It can be the case that the vendors themselves are colluding against you. And that's where you look for how the auditor should be saying, this company got it, then the next one got it. Are they taking turns? How come it's like it looks like they're taking turns? How come this one didn't get it t- twice in a row? That type of thing. And, and changes in, in, in the way they – when they, they supply the tenders. Are there any patterns that are emerging? So procurement fraud, what you're saying is symbiotic relationship between a corrupt vendor and a potentially corrupt employee that then does become corrupt. Yes, and each one can initiate. So you can have the the vendor normally is the one that says, I'll give you 50000 if you give me the tender. Or you can have the employee saying, I'll give you the tender, but what will you give me? I want something. So it just depends who initiates that. It could be either one. 
And it's rife. Yes, it is. And how do we change that? Because we use social media in my organization to, I wouldn't say name and shame, that would be the incorrect term, to bring to the attention the way frauds are perpetrated, but we put a face to it, generally speaking. And we then get all these messages back on the message boards to the effect of, well, if government's corrupt, why, why aren't there pictures here? Why aren't we seeing the ruling party behind bars? Um, why are you targeting this specific person for defrauding her company? I'm sure her bosses are doing it with government officials. How do we take this shocking perception of justification of fraud and change it in the public eye? Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up. I found some companies actually budget for fraud. They put aside X amount of money, and I'm saying, how can you do that? And a lot of them say we've got zero tolerance, but they're being hypocrites because on the side – Oh, no, it costs too much to fight fraud. And I'm saying, just get the basics right. You know, it's like I used to play a lot of tennis. And what happens, you start coming up with your clever shots and you forget your basics to follow through. If you're a golfer, the same thing, follow through. And they're forgetting the basics and they, they're dropping the code of conduct training. Many of our most successful clients that are preventing and detecting a lot of fraud, um, I come in on an annual basis to do code of conduct refresher and and reminders, and people say, thank you so much, I've forgotten it. And research that was done, it's found that a person forgets 80% of what they supposedly learned within a month. 80% is gone unless you're working with it on a daily basis. So it's critical to have these bit of refreshers. I always say, start off with face-to-face training so you can build up a relationship with a the person. Thereafter, you can have animated GIFs popping up, screensavers, posters, newsletter articles. And then a year later, you decide, what do we want to have? One of my best clients uh, is South African Reserve Bank. Every year they're challenging me. They say, what can we do different this year? In 2012, they brought in their forensic department. And we've been doing training. And as I say, every year, it's what you did this last year. What can you do this year? Because we don't want people to get bored with what we're doing. So that keeps me on my toes. I have to come up with different stuff so that the audience does say, oh, oh, I've seen this before. So when we look at our Companies Act now, when you and I were still chatting 25 years ago, we had a very antiquated Companies Act. We've now got a Companies Act that incorporates corporate governance. They've taken certain elements of King's Four. You see that the responsibility no longer rests with the directors from a fiduciary perspective, but it also rests with persons in authority or decision-making. And there's avenues allowed for where you can nail organizations or their employees or their directors if they've acted in a reckless or fraudulent manner, something we couldn't do in the past. This, again, from a helicopter view, sounds incredible. You say start with the basics of the code of conduct. You spoke about the carrots with a stick. How do you enforce and enforce and enforce that those individuals that may be complicit in an illicit act will be held liable? We found that many organizations are going that route. So we find the corrupt employee. The next question is, how come the boss didn't pick it up? Not internal audit. In the past, it was internal audit. We're saying, well, internal audit doesn't work with a person five days a week, every week. But the boss is there. How come the boss didn't pick it up? So... The other thing we found is that organizations are sweeping these things under the carpet. They may prosecute, they may fire the person, but they're not advertising the fact. And we're saying, advertise it. Let people know you're serious and you're taking action. Use it as a marketing tool to show the, my competitors aren't, picking, aren't telling you what they're picking up. Look what we're picking up. We're good on corporate governance. 
And that's why you've got your, your six criteria that directors need to have in King 4. And remember King 3, it was Raft, R-A-F-T, and they found, uh, let me see if I can remember them, responsibility, accountability, um, I don't know if you can remember the other two, T- transparency. The King 4 said, hang on, we found now that some directors are incompetent, so they've brought on the I, um, for, sorry, for the C, for incompetence. We need competent people that know what they're doing, that are dedicated, that don't sleep at these board meetings. And then integrity, because we find a lot of these people lack integrity. They've got these dubious gray pasts. Do we want them on our board? And I think you've just hit the nail on the head. We've got people that are being recycled in the system. We've just heard about a mayor in the Western Cape who has come back into office who has been previously found guilty of raping a minor. Now, for God's sake, that may not be a financial crime, but if this is the kind of deviant, he's not been accused, he's been found guilty, so we can call him a convicted child rapist, is now the mayor of a small town in the Cape. If he's deviant to that extent, it means he's a deviant character. Fraud is nothing to him. If you can rape a child, you can do a lot of terrible things. So accountability, like you said, is so very important, and the competency thereof but organizations bring people onto their board that can open doors for them and it's some of those people that have that perhaps dubious or shadowy background king's was incredible when it was introduced in south africa as was certain aspects of our companies act our legislation in south africa is phenomenal we've got preca which has an, an obligation placed upon us to report fraud and corruption We have POCA, which allows us to investigate organized crime. We have FICA, which wasn't introduced to make our lives difficult in opening a bank account, but to establish the Financial Intelligence Center. But do you feel there isn't a willpower to actually prosecute according to this legislation? They rather look for the low-hanging fruit when it comes to investigation and prosecution. I agree with you, Chad. The will is not there. We call it the political will. It's it's on paper. It's like controls on paper, but they're not actually working. Um, you brought up the word deviance. Can I just pick up on that? In my training, I show people what makes a situational fraud. You've got the professional fraudsters. They don't need a reason to steal. They will start stealing from day one. It's their job to steal. But the situational fraudsters, the person that's honest today, you hire me, and then six months, six years later, my situation's changed. I'm under pressure. I see an opportunity to alleviate my pressure. And then I rationalize it's okay to do it. Now, in order to pick up the fraudster, you've got to look for people who are under pressure, who have opportunities, but you won't see the deviance. That's in the person's mind. So we, the, the, the rationalization. So we replace the rationalization with deviance. You look for people that are deviant. Because as you said, if I'm stealing pens, am I a pen thief or am I a thief? Of course, I'm a thief. So what else am I going to steal besides the stationery? We're chatting to Mario Fazikas. When we come back, Mario's going to tell us a little bit more about the training. We're going to look at training that every company should have, whether they're a small, medium, or massive-sized organization. And then we're going to expand on that to see what training should be at the very top. You're listening to The Confidential Brief with Chad Thomas on High FM. Confidential Brief is proudly brought to you by Rubber Roofs, the trusted name, in roof waterproofing. Mario, before we went to break, I, I mentioned the importance of training. Every organization needs to be fraud 
aware. That's that goes without a doubt, especially the climates of business as we currently see it. But not everybody can afford it. So what are the must-haves that every organization should look at in training its staff all the way to the top where it could be kind of a nice-to-have? I, I would prefer to be a must-have, but a lot of organizations wouldn't be able to afford. Chad, it's critical to start at the top. You need buy-in. At many of our clients, we asked, has the board seen this training? And we're honest with them. In a lot of cases, we say, no, they haven't. Oh, that's interesting. What is that message telling us, that all the crooks are down here? It's not important. And we even go so far as to say the invite should come from the CEO's office. His secretary should send it out. If it comes from HR, it's no big deal. You get low attendance. One of the first things that I do is do a survey, anonymous survey. I keep it open for two weeks. We send it to all the employees. And we send reminders, and I ask about 15, 16 questions. And some of the questions are, what's going on? Tell me what's going on. And they come back with nepotism, favoritism, bribery, corruption, you name it. They open up because there's a saying, a, a prophet is not without honor except in his own town amongst his own people. I'm a stranger. They tend to open up. I then incorporate that into the training, and generally a, an awareness session is two hours People are not going to sit through longer unless it's specific training, in which case I will go to maybe a day's training with its frontline staff that are dealing with cash or other documents of value or whatever the case is. I then bring those um, survey stats through and say, this is what you told me, ladies and gents. Wow, we can't believe it. And we actually generate a management report that gets given to management afterwards. And management tell us the same thing. Is this what's going on in our business? Well, that's what they've told us. We also do fraud examples. One of the first things I ask for is, give me, what are the last few frauds you've had? Oh, but should we be showing people? I said, yes, of course you must show them. Let them know that you're having fraud. You're sweeping it on the carpet and they think everybody's honest and nobody's really looking for anything. When they know that the fraudsters actually live here and work here, they'll be more alert. We bring in videos, mob bosses, whistleblowers, people, local people, and of course some Americans. Because Americans always make good videos. We link the hotline, the code of ethics, the IT, social media policy, bring it all together so people understand why do we have this thing? Why do we have corporate governance? We do some polls, maybe, and then we say what you need to do is a quiz, maybe six months later, do out a survey quiz to see how much have they retained. And you'll be, most probably be shocked. Or what we want them to do is say, oh, we've forgotten the values. Let's go and look. So it refreshes their mind every six months. Let's go see what our corporate values are and answer these questions. And another thing we do is maybe an infographic handout with the key points of the training that people can just pin up or put in their desk drawer, and it's a reminder to them of what they went through in the training. Do you get feedback after the training from management to say whether it has had an impact? Have you had feedback where they say, listen, these skills have resulted in people being identified, and do you – Try maintain a zero tolerance um, that your clients can understand. If they have found it, they have to make sure that those around are aware of it. We've actually got a client who says to me, we can tell the people that have gone through your training and that haven't. I said, how? By the way they act and what they do and what they say. A lot of clients say, I do an evaluation afterwards. How did, did you enjoy the training? What would you like to see? What could we have done better? And so on. So generally with most training, it's a reaction. Did people enjoy it or didn't they? Oh, they enjoyed it. It was good training. You've got to go beyond that, Chad, to say, did people actually learn anything? And that's why we say in six months time, ask them the, those important questions. And then has behavior changed? 
are we getting more calls in a hotline? Are we getting less calls in a hotline? Is there more ethical behavior? That's the key. And what are we seeing happening now? Are people beginning to finally realize that they – and, and, and it's hard for me to encapsulate in words. Jobs are so scarce. You should be appreciative of the fact that you're employed. Are people beginning to realize that they need to point out faults within their organization without fears of reprisal to save themselves and those around them? Because if that company closes, it's going to be damn hard for them to find work elsewhere. They understand, Chad. The, the thing is there's victimization, and in many cases, remember, the more senior you are, the more you can steal. You can cut corners, go over controls, and that's what I'm seeing. People are blowing the whistle on their bosses. So, of course, these things are getting swept under the carpet. We had a case at one municipality in Peter Maritzburg. The chief audit executive started an investigation against the municipal manager and the mayor. Well, he got suspended. That was the obvious thing. So that's why it's so important to bring in an independent third party. And and that's why we say even when it, with an investigation, when you're investigating the senior people, don't try and do it yourself. Bring in ex, external people like yourselves. You do the investigation instead of them investigating their bosses because it's going to go nowhere. Unbelievably, and this is how we've been conditioned in South Africa, when you mentioned that audit executive at that municipality that uh, was investigating the mayor and the a municipal manager, I thought that that person you were going to say that person was killed. Instead, you said suspend. I thought, oh, thank God, they were just suspended. We condition now that whistleblowers are at risk, and it's a frightening experience and a threat to you and your family to actually let the truth be known. Yeah, he's actually been suspended, reinstated, suspended, reinstated. It's like a yo-yo game. I, I don't know where he is now. <laughs> I hope he's still alive. But, yes, there's horror stories. Look at that lady for the Department of Health. Babita. Yes, um, terrible. She's doing the right thing. Now, how do I go and convince people that you must do the right thing? They want to do the right thing. That's why I say make it easy for them. Give them an anonymous toll-free hotline where they can send an SMS, make a phone call, go online. Mario, talking about going online, how do our listeners reach out to you? Um, they can email me, mario.fazikas at auditlink.net or give me a call, 083-611-0161. And is auditlink.net the email address? Uh, the, the, the website, rather? No, that's the email. email. Okay. So, very important. Let's, let's, let's wrap up with the importance of training. If you had to, in one paragraph, express the need and the importance for fraud awareness training, which I don't see why we would need to have an executive summary considering the circumstances of our country at the moment, but why and how would you emphasize the importance of that? Well, the Association of Certified Fraud Examiners, the biggest anti-fraud organization in the world, they've been going for over 20 years, and every two years they do a report to the nation, global statistics um, on fraud, prevention, detection, and investigation. And their latest survey report says fraud losses decreased by 38% when organizations did regular fraud awareness training, and the duration of frauds decreased by 33%. What more do I need to say? Do you want to give that money away, or do you want to keep it? That in itself is incredible. More than a third reduction based on the fact that fraud awareness training was initiated. Regular fraud awareness. Once, once off, tick the box, doesn't work. It's got to be ongoing. And it can't just be because of memory retention, like you mentioned. It's because frauds are so adept to change. They are changing the way in which they defraud organizations. Especially now. Back in the day when you and I were talking 25 years ago, 
generally the same frauds, modus operandi, carried on this year, next year, and the foreseeable future. They didn't step up the game. But now it's literally every month something new's coming along. We use a password manager. Great. Now they're hacking password managers. So now what? How do we keep up with all of this? That's why you need multi-factor authentication. We're not waiting 25 years for our next <laughs> conversation, are we? I hope not. <laughs> I definitely hope not. Mario Fazekas from uh, Audit Link today advising about the importance of fraud awareness training. Mario, thank you so much for joining us today. Jed, my pleasure. Thank you, everybody. Confidential Brief was proudly brought to you by Rubber Roofs, the trusted name in roof waterproofing. If you are tired of getting contractors in to fix your leaky roof, only to find out that your roof still leaks, it's time to sort that leak out for good. Rubber Roofs manufacture and apply the rubber paint to your roof, and your roof will look great and won't leak anymore. Rubber Roofs offer a 10-year warranty. Rubber Roofs is the trusted name in roof waterproofing. You can find out more at www.rubberroofs.co.za. Thank you so much for joining me in the hot seat next week. Karen Dolly from Daily Maverick, she's going to be chatting to us all about her new book that covers the cartels, the underworld, and the collusion. And that's the fraud and corrupt collusion that occurs between all the major role players in the Western Cape. Next week, same time, same place. Thank you so much for joining us.